0: Welcome back to the West London Witch. This episode includes a story of suicide and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Perhaps four martinis wasn't such a good idea. The first one made the second one look appetizing and it all went downhill from there. What was it F. Scott Fitzgerald said? First you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes you. Something like that. And old Fitzgerald knew a thing or two about alcohol. Meredith smiled as she handed the cabbie a 20 and stepped into the gold and green art deco lobby. Very Fitzgerald, she thought to herself. After a week of meetings and conferences, she wasn't wrong to enjoy her last night in the city. A little frivolity could be forgiven and there's nothing room, service, water, and ibuprofen couldn't help. Meredith's black leather slingbacks clacked on the geometric tiles as she made her way, as gracefully as possible, to the elevator at the end of the hotel lobby. Her glossy red fingertips pressed the bronze button and she waited, with some help from the wall, for the elevator to descend to the ground floor. Soon enough, two bronze doors slid open. Behind them was a lattice door that was swiftly opened by an elevator attendant, decked in scarlet velvet. Good evening, Miss Jones. Meredith took a step back. She had been staying at the hotel for a week. Not once had she seen this interior lattice door. Never had there been an attendant before. And how did he know her name? Miss Jones, the attendant repeated. Hypnotically, as if under a spell, Meredith stepped into the elevator. The attendant closed the gate and the bronze exterior doors followed with a soft clang. Uh, I'm on the sixth floor, Meredith muttered, shaking loose from whatever possessed her to enter the gliding box. Oh, I know, Miss Jones, but first, the party. A white-gloved finger jabbed at the mezzanine level, which was odd as Meredith had overheard that that level had been blocked up, converted into the laundry and storage center. Thank you so much, but I really couldn't attend a party now, Meredith responded politely. Oh, but you must. You wouldn't want to miss it. Besides, everyone is expecting you. Meredith's stomach lurched. She couldn't tell if it was the gin or an unshakable feeling of unease. This was all wrong. The elevator tottered to a halt and the attendant opened the doors to reveal a riotous party, a costume party by the looks of it. Everyone was clad in fringe and feathers, strings of pearls and suspenders. Enjoy the party, Miss Jones, the attendant said as he guided her out of the elevator. Oh no, I really just need to head to bed. Meredith turned, attempting in vain to re-enter the elevator. Yet as she turned, She did not see the two bronze doors, but rather a sage-green wall trimmed in gold. The elevator was gone. Propelled by curiosity and a heavy helping of confusion, she began down the hall, pushing past perfumed ladies flirting with men whose hands were full of champers and cigars. As she journeyed deeper down the hall, the sound of a jazz band seemed to mimic her heartbeat, discordant and syncopated. A gentleman in a three-piece suit opened a massive gold door for her as Meredith barreled into a glittering, smoke-filled ballroom. Crimson walls covered in mirrors made the space feel endless. No beginning and no end. Meredith headed towards the bar. Surely the bartender could help her get to her room or at least call down to the lobby. A young man in his 20s greeted her with a brilliant, pearly smile. Miss Jones! What can I do you for? Sorry, I just need to get to my room and I seem to have lost the elevator. Can you help direct me? You haven't lost anything, Miss Jones. You're right where you're supposed to be. Martini, two olives? No, no, I just, I just need to find my way to the elevator or the stairs even. You don't want to leave yet. The party's just began and your favorite song is coming up. "'Sorry, no, I'm really not supposed to be here. "'I've been at work all day, you see, "'and I've got an early flight tomorrow morning, "'and I'm really not dressed for a themed party.' "'What are you talking about? "'You look fabulous!' In that moment, Meredith caught a glimpse of herself "'in the mirrored column of the bar. "'Gone was her modest gray wool skirt "'and white buttoned-up Oxford top. "'She indeed did look fabulous.' A beaded drop-waist gown that hit just below her knees adorned her straight frame. Long silk gloves climbed up her arms as blue opal marcasite earrings dripped from her ears like raindrops. I am so confused, Meredith said to the barman, her eyes frantically searching for an answer. Drink your martini, Miss Jones, and enjoy the music. Dutifully, Meredith took a sip as the three parts gin to one part vermouth hit her lips a chorus of trombones brass piano and saxophone began to swill around her a flurry of dancers Charlestoned around her in a frenzy the room was a rush of color shape, smoke and sound the music began to fade into a jumbled jam of minor chords and blurred beats the smoke seemed to grow in its density and the crimson paint was rushing off the walls like blood filling the room. The dancers twirled, turned, shimmied and shaked. Feathers went flying, hats fell to the floor as the tornado of sound and movement began to crescendo. Meredith looked on in horror as flesh began to peel off of the dancers. Plaster fell from the walls and the drink in her hand turned from icy liquor to a black odorous venom. It was in that moment when another F. Scott Fitzgerald quote befell Meredith like an epitaph. The loneliest moment in someone's life is when they are watching their whole world fall apart and all they can do is stare blankly. friends, it's Becca. For the past three years, the West London Witch team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy Danny. We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough. So if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay, we aren't going anywhere head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind the scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of The West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. Los Angeles, California, the land of glitz, glamour, the silver screen and celebrity. And while all this may be true, it's also the land of broken dreams, failed enterprises, rising crime, and homelessness. Today, we are pulling back the glitzy facade of one of LA's most luxurious and historic establishments, the Hotel Alexandria. You may not know the Hotel Alexandria by its name, but if you've watched shows like American Horror Stories Hotel or seen movies like Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, then you have certainly seen or felt its influence. This once crowning jewel of Tinseltown has had a quick rise to fame and notoriety and an even quicker fall from grace. Much like the true spirit of Hollywood, underneath this prestigious allure is a series of grisly deaths, harrowing stories, and ghostly scars left on the building that are still felt today. The Hotel Alexandria is named one of the most haunted hotels in Los Angeles. But The details online are thin and murky. However, we are so lucky to have Craig Owens, author of Haunted by History, separating the facts and legends of eight historic hotels and inns in Southern California to help guide us through these gruesome tales. His research into the hotel has been extensive, exhaustive, and driven by the motivation to isolate the truth from the Hollywood gossip. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch. Episode 58, The Hotel Alexandria.
1: One of my favorite buildings in all of Los Angeles, and also happen to think it's one of the most actively haunted buildings in all of Los Angeles, is the Hotel Alexandria. And it was L.A.'s first five-star hotel.
0: Prior to the Hotel Alexandria breaking ground in 1906, Los Angeles was a wild west town, a lawless land of prospectors, oil men, and those embarking on Manifest Destiny.
1: L.A. was dirty streets, horse-drawn buggies. There's a lot of new money coming in from the mines, mineral surveyors, and prospectors coming out West. The railroad had brought a lot of them into LA and Nevada, for instance, was booming.
0: Between the influx of new money, perpetual California sunshine, and the growing area, there was a desperate need for a higher end resort-like hotel. Something grander than the rugged Wild West had to offer something that harkened back to the more established and industrialized East Coast.
1: So starting around the, the turn of the 20th century, there were different structures going up. And in 1905, two men living in South Pasadena decided that they were going to build the first five-star hotel. So they raised a million dollars and they rented land from about five or six different landowners and then they constructed this huge for its time it's about a six-story Beaux-Arts building
0: absolutely no expense was spared in the construction of the hotel
1: they had mosaic tile that was custom made they brought in egyptian marble and they made this huge lobby with these giant pillars with green Egyptian marble and the the walls of the lobby and a lot of the hotel was this dark emerald green. And when it opened, it was an immediate success. It became such a landing spot for people with money that all of the local newspapers started just planting reporters in the lobby, just waiting to see who would come in. Now, the mining years at the Alexandria started to peter out around 1910, 1911, 1912. But a new industry came in, and that was the motion picture industry.
0: A constant flow of celebrities and affluent guests checked into the Hotel Alexandria. In its heyday, everyone from Mary Pickford, Rudolph Valentino, Thomas Edison, Charlie Chaplin, Paul Whiteman, and even Presidents Taft and Wilson stayed at the five-star hotel. The Hotel Alexandria was the it place of the West Coast. In 1910, 1911, the need to expand forced the Alexandria to build an annex, a 12-story addition to the original six-story building. But it wasn't all starlets and sunshine. The growth of the Alexandria was paid for in the blood of humble construction workers.
1: Right before they were starting construction, there were union tensions with the steel workers. And nationwide, they called a steel strike. And L.A. was very Republican back then. And the Alexandria owners were very conservative and anti-union so they were going to build with scabs which are non-union workers this caused immediate problems picketers union picketers started showing up and there were some tragic accidents that happened one had to do with a non-union employee falling to his death and as the construction crew brought the dead body out into the street it caused a riot and the union picketers started attacking the non-union workers and the police had to arrive and they dispersed the crowd and not long after that another accident happened within days where another worker was injured
0: after this second incident the hotel alexandria erected a huge fence around the construction site So no one could see in. There were more accidental deaths and injuries sustained by non-union workers. And due to the secrecy on the site, we may never know exactly how costly the annex really was. But the show continued on, and the new annex and the growth of the film industry kept the Alexandria a riotous success. Craig described it as the Plymouth Rock of Hollywood.
1: Now the Alexandria, despite all this, had a dark side as well. And there were people that I, I'm convinced went there to take their own lives in order to make the newspapers. There was an interesting story that I came across in 1912 and it had to do with the death cycle of three. And apparently what happened is that there was a person who had been living there for a while. She was an elderly lady and she just died in her bed. Then within like a few days later, another man died in bed. And the newspapers were beginning to pick up on this. And then there was the third death and it was a young girl, about 18 years old. She ended up dying at around five in the morning.
0: Three natural deaths, totally understandable, Tragic, yes. Unfortunate, certainly. And admittedly not great for business. The newspapers were running articles about the deaths. And then, in a very strange turn of events, the general manager of the hotel held a press conference.
1: And he's like saying, what a relief. The cycle of three is over now. I was really worried with the two. that this is not superstition at all. This stuff really happens. There's no ghosts, no anything like that. We can just all go back to normal.
0: Why would anyone hold a press conference dismissing the idea of ghosts in the hotel if you, your staff, and your guests did not report ghosts? There is no smoke without fire.
1: Then you had the first reported suicide, which I don't actually believe was a suicide, it happened in 1915. And I actually do think that she's one of the ghosts that's haunting the Alexandria today. There was a woman who checked in under a pseudonym, and she was alone. She stayed in the suite. The next day, housekeeping hears her moaning from inside of her room. She goes in and the woman is writhing in pain in bed and she does manage to utter something. And what she says is, I'm in so much pain, I drank something, Uh, I drank poison, I'm in so much pain, I just want to die.
0: After Miss Anna Fairchild's death, which the police had just written off as a suicide, they contacted her husband in San Francisco to relay the tragic news.
1: And the husband said, oh, it doesn't surprise me. She was carrying on an affair with one of my oldest friends and employers. I begged her not to leave San Francisco and go back to him, but she did anyway, this doesn't surprise me. And the newspapers in LA just kind of dropped it at that.
0: But what the newspapers didn't report was this was a whole lot stranger than a woman leaving her husband to return to her supposed lover in L.A. The husband and wife were in the throes of a contentious lawsuit with the man Mrs. Fairchild was having an affair with. They were suing him for ruining their marriage, and the case had absolutely fallen apart in court. The very first witness accused Mr. and Mrs. Fairchild of essentially being habitual scammers. The Fairchild's marriage was falling apart. Another major failing in this case was the lack of suspicion cast upon Mr. Fairchild, who had a motive, means, and opportunity to want his wife and fellow conspirator dead. The reality is It is highly unlikely that Anna Fairchild would have electively attempted suicide in such a painful and long-drawn-out fashion. There is definitely an argument to be made that her husband who she was now in a contentious relationship with and was also a druggist may have slipped her something or poisoned a medication or sleeping tonic that she had packed in her bag as she left from San Francisco to escape him. Their marriage was over. She was fleeing San Francisco and it's possible that she knew too much and Mr. Fairchild wanted to neutralize her threat.
1: And just because... She's saying, I drank poison, I'm in so much pain, I want to die. That is not necessarily a confession of suicide. Anybody that is in that much pain, regardless of whether it was intentional or not, they're going to say, I want to die if they're being burned alive from within, from this slow-acting poison. So I think they, they rushed to judgment in thinking that that was a an actual suicide confession.
0: Although Anna's body was obviously removed from the hotel, it doesn't mean that her spirit doesn't still remain.
1: Starting in the uh, 50s, there were tales of a woman in black from, they describe her as Victorian, but the Alexandria actually came about after the Victorian era. And looking over the deaths, the closest time frame, is in fact this woman who suicided in 1915 or allegedly suicided. And people had seen her in the 50s or 60s wandering around the halls, looking very sad. And then she just kind of lists and disappears at the Alexandria. And then in the 1970s, it started being told again. It was they were doing a major renovation of the hotel and some of the women that were hanging pictures in the hallway, they saw this woman looking very sad. They described her as looking on the middle-aged side, dressed in black, walking about 15 feet, and then disappearing. To this day, people still are claiming to see this woman in black.
0: There are a lot of reports of this woman in black. She's seen wandering the halls, in the ballroom, in the lobby, and turning around the corners just visible out of the corner of your eye. It is told on many tourist and ghost blogs that she is, quote, seen wearing a crown of barbed wire with tears of blood running down her cheeks, end quote. Now, this might be so, I haven't seen her, but I think that this Victorian lady is more likely. Craig found a photo of Anna Fairchild, and I can totally see how her more Edwardian garb could be mistaken for Victorian. The story of a woman wearing a crown of barbed wire, crying tears of blood, is fantastic. But it might just be that. Fantastical, fictional, and not based in truth. But the story doesn't end there because Anna Fairchild is not the only person to die under strange circumstances at the Hotel Alexandria.
1: There was another story that's really odd, too. It was a woman who clearly had mental issues, and she checked into a hotel room to commit suicide because she lived in L.A. And she wrote several suicide notes, and then she had brought a gun with her, and she pointed it at her chest while laying in bed. She fired. It missed the heart. So she's bleeding, and in great pain, she drags herself out of bed, goes to a mirror, and using the mirror reflection, re-aims the gun, and then fires, and it hits the mark. It was a bloody mess. No one heard the gunshot. uh, Again, a chambermaid found it. When they brought the husband in, he saw the body and immediately fainted.
0: Sadly, the grisly gun deaths don't end here.
1: 1920 was an odd year, and it was the last really great year that the Alexandria had as a five-star hotel a man named Pat O'Brien. It has nothing to do with the Pat O'Briens of recent years. He was a, a World War I hero. He trained as a pilot and was actually flying and doing missions during World War I before the United States even entered the war. That's how gung-ho he was. And he gets shot down behind enemy lines. And he made this harrowing escape. And so he wrote this best-selling book called outwitting the hunt.
0: Due to his notoriety, Pat goes on the lecture circuit. And whilst in D.C., he falls in love with an aspiring actress. The pair move to L.A. so she can pursue her dream, whilst he looks for work as a stunt flyer or a barnstormer.
1: They did this movie together, but it was considered one of the most racist movies Even for 1920, it was a Western that demonized the Japanese, which made no sense at all.
0: This B-movie was so bad, so racist, that even the 1920s audiences and picture houses wanted nothing to do with it. The O'Briens had invested their own money, time, and careers into this film that was being totally slammed and panned. It's no coincidence. The suicide occurred right before the film's release.
1: Pat O'Brien and his wife got into a argument and there might've been some domestic violence and he was threatening her. And so she checks into the Alexandria Hotel and he follows right after her. And they're both staying on the same floor Just a few rooms apart from one another, and he's trying to beg for reconciliation.
0: Mrs. O'Brien was now living at the hotel with a female friend, and she was refusing to even speak to Pat.
1: Then one night he wrote several different suicide notes, and he put a gun to his head, and he blew his brains out, and the wife heard the shot. And The police went in to investigate. His family could not believe and refused to believe that he had committed suicide. So they literally pressured the DA to reopen the investigation as a possible homicide. So they went back into the room and they looked at everything over again, but they determined it had to have been a suicide just because of the trajectory of the bullet. Then they were going, well, what happened to their money? what happened to their money. Turns out that they were in a financial bind. And so the family, while the family, you know, were insistent that she robbed them blind and that she arranged it was foul play. Really, you have to look at the big picture here. And the big picture is they invested into this movie that they knew was going to be a dog.
0: In the late 19-teens, the Alexandria was sold.
1: They did sell it. To a Chicago entity that wanted to build another hotel in L.A., but they needed the clout. And the Alexandria gave them the clout to build their dream hotel, which was the Ambassador Hotel.
0: After the Alexandria was sold, it began to go downhill fast. Once the Ambassador opened its doors on January 1st, 1921, the Alexandria took a back seat.
1: And by 1934, the Alexandria went bankrupt and all of the great stuff and all the history was auctioned off. And interestingly enough, I had said that they had built this hotel on top of land that they had rented. What happened is when it went bankrupt is that parts of the building went back to the landowner. And so the landowners were like, what am I going to do with this piece of building on my land? I mean, I only own part of the building. So a lot of them got together and they said, let's get rid of this. Let's pool our stuff together and let's sell it outright. But there was one landowner that wouldn't do that.
0: A man named William Chick refused to sell his portion of the land. So the rest of the landowners gathered together and sold their portions to a man named Goldstone.
1: What ended up happening he said, OK, well, if you aren't going to sell me this piece of the building, at least let's keep the rent the same for the tenants and the shops. Below. And Chick was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So what ended up happening is he lowered his rent on his side and. Goldstone lost one of his tenants that moved over to the other building. Goldstone got so mad. And once he discovered that William Chick's half of the building had no stairs and had no elevator, he sent notification to all the people living on that side of the building that they had to move out in like 48 hours because he's walling it up, building a wall. So people did have to flee in a hurry to get out of there. And he lived. He lived up to his threat. He built a huge wall. And it is still sealed today, and it's called the Ghost Wing. Now, if you've seen American Horror Story Hotel, that is the Alexandria Hotel.
0: So what happened to the Alexandria? Well, it began a very quick decline. In 1936, 1937, it reopened as a mid-range hotel but all the glitz and glamor had truly faded away. In 1954, a big makeover took place. The once Beaux-Arts lobby was bastardized into a mid-century modern mess. The beautiful pillars were removed and the mezzanine level filled in. However, in the late 1960s, a Renaissance occurred. The hotel was bought and done up in a Victorian revival style. Yet, by the 1980s, drugs abounded and Skid Row wrapped its tentacles of depravity around the hotel and the surrounding neighborhood. So naturally, by the 1990s, it had been transformed into low-income housing. Today, it's a mixed bag, a movie set, business block, wedding venue, and low-income housing. It's a work in progress. But for the spirits, it's a timeless space.
1: There was this wonderful ballroom on the second floor. It's where the motion picture stars would have their private functions. There's actually a photo of Harry Houdini and his wife celebrating their anniversary in that room. This ballroom is fabulous. It also happens to be one of the most active, paranormally active rooms in the place. And people thought they have heard the sound of music, dancing, flickering lights. And there is a small child, about eight years old, that's dressed in like a white dress, nightgown maybe, that's been seen, not just around the ballroom, but in other parts of the hotel as well. And I've never been able to figure out who that is because I've never found evidence of a child dying there. But it does sometimes, I sometimes wonder if it harkens back to that story I said about a young girl about 18 years old that was emaciated and died of tuberculosis. She did die in a white gown at about five in the morning.
0: The little girl or young woman seen in the ballroom is a frequent sighting that is well-documented. Although Craig hasn't seen her, he has had a truly terrifying experience in the Alexandria that was not only experienced by him, but also a group that he was working with.
1: When I started with my book, Haunted by History, what I did and what I do is I'll rent haunted rooms and then I'll dress it up in another time period. And we'll spend hours there shooting. And I had chosen the Valentino Suite, okay? Because I had heard that the Valentino Suite was haunted. And now they decorated it very masculine, and something that you could easily picture Rudolph Valentino being in there. It had deep red carpet. The rooms were stark red wallpaper, Victorian wallpaper, with red and gold. And then the next room would be gold with a little bit of red. This is almost like inverted, you know? And then they had these dark, black curtains that separated the two rooms. And then they had a picture of Valentino mounted to the wall. Well, flash forward to me doing my photo shoot there, it was it, it hadn't been changed or modified much since 1970. So I mean it, it was insanely bad. And there was no air conditioning, no one had lived in the place. Oddly enough, in the gold room it looked like this big smear of blood splattered on the wall, and I asked about that, and I was told by an employee, "Oh, we shoot movies in here, so that's just movie special effects." So I didn't, I didn't question it. I thought, well, I'll, I'll use it to shoot with. So I brought in a bunch of antiques, and we dolled up that room. And and then I brought in a woman that I dressed her up as the Phantom of the Opera, all in red with a big, like, cavalier red hat with a plume. And I put her in this room and we were shooting all day long and everything was fine until it got dark. And then once it got dark, ooh, it started getting really gloomy. There was like this thickness and tension in the room.
0: The shoot was all going to plan, and Craig was capturing some hauntingly beautiful recreations in the Valentino suite. That was until their leasing
1: agent came on set. And he was being a little bit of a nuisance. He was hitting on the hair and makeup. And I was like, uh, what do I do with him? So I gave him like a disco strobe light. And while we were in the red room, I put him... Just down this narrow hallway into the gold room. and he was all by himself back there and i just said just shine this disco light down the hallway and onto the mall. so we're shooting and i'm making adjustments changing the lights around at one point the leasing agent goes greg can you hurry up and get your shot it's getting very cold back here and i'm feeling kind of scared Craig
0: dismissed the agent's complaints and continued to focus on creating the perfect shot.
1: Then five minutes of him saying that, a door inside that gold room slams shut. So violent that all the 1911 glass rattled in both rooms. We all jumped. The leasing agent screams bloody murder. And I'll never forget seeing that spotlight that he was holding, bouncing all over the room. He was shaking so hard while holding it. And I had to tell everybody, calm down. So we get the shot. I said to the leasing agent, I said, you don't have to be back there anymore. There's no way I'm gonna get him to stay back there now after that happened. So he's up front with us until we went back and looked at that door, and that was a door to a windowless bathroom. That was, well, let me just put it this way. Earlier that day, I had tried to shut that door. It was wedged open, and I couldn't get it to budge. The floor tiles were warped from years, decades, and decades of heat. It hadn't been taken care of since 1970. So I wasn't gonna break the door. I did not want to break the door by trying to force this door shut. So I just said, okay, we'll just leave that door and I'll shoot around it. And so once I realized that, I was like, okay, there's no way there's a draft that could have unstuck that door. So what we did is we pulled the door back and got it stuck again. And then I tried to see how much effort it would take to unstick that door. And it was about 90% of my arm strength before I could get it to slam the way that it did.
0: Just this past year, the Valentino suite finally got a proper makeover. The designer was so impressed with Craig's photo shoot, she used his work as the inspiration for the remodel. The interior designer had obviously spent a lot of time in the space and she told Craig of some grisly discoveries her remodel had uncovered. Namely, that massive spray of blood covering the wall in the gold room. The designer said that when she tried to remove the supposed movie blood, it didn't react like corn syrup and food dye but rather like real blood.
1: She said that in maybe the 80s or 90s there was a murder that took place there it was during a party and that it was a woman of color and that they just never bothered to clean up the wall and she believes that that's what it's that energy of this particular possible murder victim and it, it's possible i mean after a certain period of time LA stops reporting a lot of deaths like that Every now and then, something will make the news. But in the 80s or 90s, if this were to happen, the Alexandria was on Skid Row. A lot of stuff in Skid Row doesn't get reported.
0: The Hotel Alexandria has had a wide and sordid past. She has seen the pinnacle of glamour and allure and the pits of destitution and depravity. And... That's what makes this great lady such a fascination and an oddity. In a lot of ways, she's an allegory for Los Angeles itself. She truly has seen it all the good, the bad, and the gory. Craig and I talked for over three hours. If you have any interest at all in ghosts, history, or the film industry, you must come here an unabridged version of our interview on our Patreon. Also, don't forget to check out Craig's book, Haunted by History, separating the facts and legends of eight historic hotels and inns in Southern California. Head on over to the West London Witch Instagram to see some of Craig's beautiful photos. His work truly is staggering. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at thewestlondonwitch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Michnade Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us.